Talking Books on News Talk 106 to 108. Hello, good morning, and you're very welcome to Talking Books with me, Susan Cahill. Well, this morning's show is going to be a bit different to usual. We're going to slow it all down and change the format around. And instead of our usual few interviews, we're going to hear from one of Ireland's best-loved authors, Deirdre Purcell. The Winter Gathering is Deirdre's 13th novel. The book is set at Christmas and really highlights the importance of friendship. And for readers who enjoyed the intensity of falling for a dancer, our other personal classics like Marble Gardens, Tell Me Your Secret and Pearl, well, the winter gathering will be a real treat. Well, Deirdre cut quite a dash when she dropped into Newstalk Studios earlier in the week in her gorgeous blue woolly dress and sparkly scarf. Both of us were moaning about heavy head colds, but despite the odds, we managed to have a great old chat. Georgia began the interview with the reading from the opening chapter of her new book, The Winter Gathering. Let's take a listen. It was mid-afternoon when I opened our front door, dumped my parcels and first thing switched on all my Christmas lights. I was thirsty and decided not to deal with the packages right away, but to put on the kettle for a cup of tea. Then, out of the corner of my eye, I spotted a piece of jotter paper folded over like a little peaked roof, propped against the lamp on the hall table. He'd marked it urgent. No doubt, I thought. He'd written it asking me to get something else for the Christmas dinner. He was forever experimenting, and we never seemed to have some ingredient he absolutely, definitely needed. I didn't really mind another trip to those crowded shops. I was tired, though. I hope he wanted something I could find locally, rather than having to go all the way back into some specialty place, like the Italian deli in Smithfield. I picked it up and unfolded it. Sorry, Dumpling, but you must have known this was coming, I guess. These things happen. It's for the best. You'll see that eventually, and you'll be glad to get rid of me. Sorry. I'll ring you. Try not to worry too much. I won't leave you short. By the way, I've left the stuffing recipe on the stove. I know how much you and Chloe loved that stuffing. Sorry, Dumpy, I really am. D. Strobing from the Christmas tree, the lights winked and blinked. On, off, on, off. Incongruously, those TV warnings to us viewers. This broadcast contains flash photography, puttered through my mind. On, off, on, off. I registered the little crescents of paper at the top of the page, ripped so forcefully from their retaining wires that they were untidy and uneven, bent every which way. Poor little bits of paper. Derek had big hands. This didn't make sense. What did he mean? These things happen. What things? Why was he apologising so much? I read it again. On, off, on, off. I noticed the misspelling of eventually. Spelling had never been Derek's strong suit. On, off. He had used the past tense. Loved, as in Chloe and I had loved his stuffing. That brought it home, sort of. Not fully, not yet. Whatever he had thought as he sat down to write this, I'd not seen it coming. His irritability with me during those weeks in October and November, I could do or say nothing right, had been mystifying, but I thought we'd put it behind us, as I said. So no, I had not seen this coming. At my feet was the lump of spiced beef I had just bought for our Christmas dinner. Spiced beef is a Cork specialty. Derek was in originally from Cork. He'd asked me to buy it, as he had every year of our marriage. It was very expensive. It wasn't that easy to find in Dublin. You had to order it from specific butchers. You had to travel. You had to earn spiced beef. 
These days, I don't know if all that pertains. I've never bought it since. And while I customarily ate only a token slice or two, I'd always loved the way its cooking on Christmas Eve filled the house with aromatic complexity. Thanks to Derek. At that time, I associated spiced beef with Christmas, and Christmas with spiced beef. Would I have bought spiced beef if I'd seen this coming? It really brings home how around Christmas, how we lose sight of everything in one way and fail to see the writing on the wall. We get so preoccupied with the details of the wrapping paper or the spiced beef, but sometimes the big issues are just right in front of us. But we're just so busy that we just can't see it. I'm not even sure that it's we're so busy. I think that in big things like this, like a relationship falling asunder, I think we distract ourselves with details. I think it's much easier and more pleasant to concentrate on what you habitually do, like buy spiced beef, like, oh, Christmas is coming. I mean, where's my list? What list will I have? this year. Where's last year's list so that I know I won't get the same thing for somebody? All of that kind of really relatively trivial things are much easier to deal with really than looking at the big issue. And the big issue for your central character in The Winter Gathering, Maggie, is the breakup of her marriage and then how that affects her relationships with her world and the friends around her. And in one way, it cements her friendships. Can you talk to me about the character of Maggie and why you set it at Christmas? I set it at Christmas for a very kind of pedestrian reason, because I love Christmas, basically. I'm a Christmas fairy. Um, I think I gave her one of my lines, I'm the Christmas fairy and this hand is my wand sort of thing. I just love Christmas. I've never written about Christmas in any detail. I've written articles about Christmas for magazines and things because my love of Christmas tends to come through. But And I actually don't know why I like Christmas. I think it's possibly because I have a very busy and somewhat crazy life in many ways. And it is great relief to focus on these small details and... I've always loved events and don't like parties, funnily enough. But I do love events. I love centering things around birthdays or Christmas or Easter or whatever the event is, weddings. I love organising and creating projects out of things. So Christmas is a major, major project for me. It's the biggest project every year. It's actually more joyful to me than almost any other time. So... I suppose I tend to go along with the view that all novel writing is serial autobiography. Although I didn't set out to do this, I'm assuming there's a lot of myself and Maggie. She's the one that majors in Christmas in this book. So it is perfectly reasonable and understandable to me how she didn't see what was coming down the tracks. She didn't see this instant leaving of her because she was so happily busy. Probably any little irritations or anything that were going on in the house. She said, oh, it's just everybody stressed at Christmas. And Derek is a chef. So he would have been extremely busy in the restaurant coming up to Christmas. So she'd probably just said, oh, well, that's just Christmas. We'll all get over it and we'll all settle down after Christmas. That kind of thing. So I suspect that's what happened. And the fraught relationships over Christmas, our patience is stretched. We can fight with the people that we love. Lack of sleep, we've been really, really busy and it's our time to relax. And we get together with people sometimes that we haven't seen all year. So it can also be a really intense and raw and kind of challenging time. So any change in your personal circumstances around Christmas can really up the ante. I would think so. And I mean, a lot of this thing, this sort of thing does happen around Christmas because precisely of what you said because of the focus that's on relationships. Since I wrote this book actually, I mean it's only just out, but I've been noticing 
the focus in TV ads on this kind of incredibly happy family, everyone smiling, everyone hugging, even the slight irritations are kind of eased off with a smile from granny, that kind of thing. And we are conditioned to the fact now, or they're trying to condition us to the fact that, you know, presents and food and glitter and glam will smooth over everything and everything is going to be happy. Now, it can be for a lot of families, but for a lot of families, it isn't. There are families where there's alcoholism, mental issues, just plain loneliness. I sometimes wonder, what about the hermit in the family? Maybe an old uncle or somebody who is left on his own, maybe with visits once a month, and suddenly is expected to come into this big, happy, jolly, flaming relationship cauldron and to be happy. How does he cope or how does she cope if it's an aunt or an old grandmother perhaps who's not very well, who's taken out of hospital into this raucous kind of situation as we see on television all the time, which represents Christmas. Now, there seems to be no happy medium. It's either this way, hey, 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 or it's homelessness and disaster and cold and all of that. So there is a happy medium, which is that people who get on get on at Christmas. People who don't get on, don't get on at Christmas. But everybody does make a special effort. I know that because they're expected to. But our expectations are, you know, so high at Christmas because we want to see all our friends. And then we hear all this romantic Christmas tunes on the radio and we go absolutely nostalgic and nuts and we revise all our past and we forgive everything. And then it all goes painfully wrong. And in some ways, the Winter Gathering addresses this year on year in terms of what are the challenges that faces anyone in their life? And why do we raise the expectations and intensify it so hard at Christmas? I think it's because we have seen all of the sentimental movies, who all, which always end happily, all of the advertising, which they spend a fortune on. There are some absolutely magnificent ads on, I would suspect, they cost as much as a feature film, some of them. But they're wonderful and they give you this warm, fuzzy feeling. And then you possibly realise that, well, that's not quite my life. Am I lacking? So what have I done wrong or why can't I have this kind of Christmas all the time? And I deal with that, but I hope I deal with it in a subtle way. I don't I don't want to hammer people on this. Christmas is a great time. It really is. And it is a time when people will say to each other, look, what was all that about? Will we just forgive and forget? Now, one of the terrific qualities of the Winter Gathering is its depiction of friendship. How friendships are changed through time and how they're tested and how honest they can be and sometimes how difficult they can be. I think that all friendships are tested, especially friendships amongst women which are the deepest friendships. Really, they are. I mean, they're not circumstantial. Uh, We don't talk about football or, you know, politics much, although with my friends I do. But I think that I don't know whether this is a a women only thing because I, I don't consider myself an expert on male friendships except they baffle me. But I think there is a deep competitiveness sometimes between women friends. I don't understand it, but for instance, my my particular career is up and down, up and down. Sometimes I'm a pauper, sometimes I have money. And there was a great period in my early years where I had a, a fair bit of money. And I did wonder if one or two of my friends resented that. They weren't jealous per se, they were very supportive, but... 
there was a, an element of who does she think she is sort of thing because I really enjoyed my money. I mean, I really did. I spent it all. I had a great time. Went on great holidays and brought people on holidays and I just really enjoyed it. And so did all the, the friends who, who kind of shared in it. I sometimes wondered, there was an occasional barb here and there and I ignored it. That's the way I deal with things. I ignored it and just never faced it. And so, and, and I don't know whether that happens with men per se, the risk of going really stupidly deep. I think there's a kind of a biological thing about it that women feel they have to compete for male attention. So they compete with each other from way, way, way back. Probably, I've no sisters, but I've noticed it with sisters. They compete with, for the father's attention. You know, there's just a kind of biological thing. And memories are very strong. We forgive, but we remember. Well, I think that's a human condition now. I think that's not necessarily just women. I think, um, yeah, we forgive, but we needn't forget we allow ourselves to kind of file it away under well I can always access that again if I want to I'm very lucky with my friends I've a wide circle of friends in various to various degrees I've had a lot of jobs and a lot in a lot of different areas and everyone has garnered me a friend and it's not serendipitous that that happens I think you recognise people that you get along with but then after you've left that particular arena it's up to you to keep it up it's up to you to keep the contact, to make the phone calls, to set up the meetings, to include them in whatever you're doing. So I don't do it deliberately. I just love the friends I have. And I love each one in each manifestation of stuff that I did. And for your character of Maggie, her friends are incredibly important to her because they help her navigate through her the disintegration of her marriage and the enormous pressures that she experiences with her sister who suffers from mental illness and friendship really triumphs. Can we talk a little bit about Maggie and Mary? Mary is Maggie's best friend and there's a very interesting passage when Mary has some bad news and how Maggie reacts. Are you talking about the time when they're in the car and they're looking out across towards the East Link big business park there and Mary has been kind of, she's she's quite a difficult personality anyway, but she has been very withdrawn and very weird all day. Now, they've been at a very weird, they've been at a kind of a, a wake. So Maggie puts it all down to that. And then when Mary says to her something to tell you, Maggie gets a big jolt, pulls in the car and they stare out at the water. And out of the blue, Mary says, I have cancer. And Maggie's reaction is, I don't believe it. What? No, you know, and she starts kind of on a kind of a childhood thing that she used to do. This distraction thing that we've talked about earlier, which is she tends to spell things backwards if she's kind of distressed or something. So she starts off with cancer. Cancer? No, no, that's knack backwards. She starts going through all of the names of her friends that she knows, spelling them backwards. This is in her mind. So there's a kind of a disbelief, anger. You can't have cancer. I need you. You can't have cancer. And then a kind of a horror because Mary insists, I have cancer and she doesn't say it. But what's unsaid is that she might die and that means she might leave Maggie. So it's a very complex and difficult reaction that she has. But I suspect that it's probably quite real for a lot of people who get that news. It's wonderfully written, but it made me think that within all friendships, there are the big highs and, and the big lows. And so for friends that dissolve on that, well, there's nothing. There's no friendship there. And that's what's really tested between Maggie and Mary and when one needs possibly one more than the other. Yeah, in many ways, it's probably easier to 
begin to act like an acolyte, to shuck off everything and concentrate entirely on the, the need of your friend. But again, I suspect, I don't know for sure, but I suspect that that's okay for a short time. But then the ego and the id and all of these things start to rise in, in every person. And God, this is going on for a long time. But of course, in this case, Mary is very, very ill, may die. And Maggie has this ongoing sort of internal dialogue. What am I going to do without her? I can't live without her. But that's, again, the ego, you know. And so she balances that by just going into the cancer treatment centre with her, sitting there, all of that. And uh, it, it actually works out for them, but it's not touch and go. It, would, it was never touch and go. But it, it's complicated. It's not mm. simply, I will now be my friend's right-hand woman. I will be my friend's apostle or disciple. I will take care of my friend's every need. That's the upper thing but down below is what about me what about me I think that is one of the things that is endemic in all friendships not just between women and all the harm that I alas it was to none but me and all I've done for want of to memory now I can't recall So fill to me the parting glass Good night and joy be with you all Oh, all the comrades the day The Wailing Jennies singing The Parting Glass. In the next part of my interview with Deirdre, we're going to look at how Deirdre develops the theme of mental health in her new book, The Winter Gathering. Talking Books on News Talk 106 to 108.